Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, cardio nerds. This is Rick Ferraro, cardiology fellow at Johns Hopkins Hospital. On today's episode, I couldn't be more excited to take a deep dive into the world of GLP-1 agonists. This is the first episode of a series on the hottest, most talked about medications on the market today and their impact on cardiovascular disease risk. To lead this journey, we have the exceptional series co-chair, Dr. Gurleen Carr, internal medicine resident at Brigham and Women's Hospital, director of the CardioNerds internship, and chief of House Eindhoven here at CardioNerds. Gurleen, let us know who else will be joining us today, and great to be here with you as always. Thank you so much, Ray. I'm so excited for today's episode, and today we have Dr. Christian Faber-Anderson joining us from Boston, where he's currently an internal medicine resident at Mass General Hospital and also a fellow in House Jones of the CardioNerds Academy. As an aspiring cardiologist, his interests within cardiovascular medicine are varied, but true to his Scandinavian roots, prevention is often at the forefront of his mind, both when he sees patients in clinic and on the medicine wards. Christian, who will be joining us as our expert faculty today? Thanks for the kind introduction, Gerline. I'm so excited to be here with you all. Today, I have the honor of introducing our faculty expert, Dr. Dennis Brumer. Dr. Brumer is a staff cardiologist and director of the Center for Cardiometabolic Health in the section of Preventive Cardiology at the Cleveland Clinic. He's also a professor of medicine at Case Western Reserve Medical School. Dr. Brumer is quadruple board certified in internal medicine, endocrinology, cardiovascular diseases, and echocardiography, and carries a wealth of experience in the comprehensive management of cardiovascular risk and metabolic control of patients with diabetes. Dr. Brumer completed his medical degree at the University of Hamburg, followed by internal medicine residency at Humboldt University in Berlin. He next moved across the pond to sunny Los Angeles, where he completed a postdoc in molecular biology, followed by two fellowships in endocrinology and cardiovascular disease at the University of Kentucky. Dedicated CardioNerds will remember him from episode 92. Dr. Brumer, welcome back to CardioNerds. Christian, thank you so much for inviting me again and for hosting this very exciting series on GLP-1 receptor agonists today. Very hot and topical areas you guys alluded to already. So. We're so excited to learn from you today, Dr. Brumer. So let's just dive right in. We'll start with a case from the CardioNerds Clinic. Miss Sweet is a 55-year-old female with a history of type 2 diabetes controlled with diet and metformin hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and a BMI of 37. Her last hemoglobin A1c was 8.9%, and she's made efforts to lose weight by joining a gym and cooking independently, so far with little success. You think a GLP-1 agonist might be a good option for her. Dr. Brumer, can you start off by telling us how GLP-1 agonists work and how they benefit patients with diabetes mellitus? Yes, of course, Colleen. Thank you so much for starting us off with the case. I think this is obviously a very common case scenario that we see in our clinics in cardiology or internal medicine or endocrinology. A female patient with hemoglobin A1C of 8.9% uncontrolled has a history of diabetes and has tried to manage this with diet. And if you look at the patient like this, who is already treated with metformin, and we look at us as a group of physicians, there's actually pretty good data that oftentimes 
these patients do not get much in terms of undergoing glucose intensification therapy. So adding additional treatment is clearly indicated, but oftentimes it's not really done very well. So I think we now have very good drugs, including GLP-1 receptor agonists as GLT-2 inhibitors, and these are very efficacious for obviously treating diabetes and cardiovascular outcomes, as we will discuss here tonight. You ask, how do GLP-1 receptor agonists actually work? This really a very intriguing and fascinating area if you think about the so-called incretin effect, which basically describes the difference in the response to an or glucose load versus an intravenous glucose load. That means that a or glucose load has a much higher insulin response and insulin secretory response on the pancreatic beta cells. And this is the basically the inquitin response. These are the hormones which are released by the gut system to enhance nutrient sensing and nutrient-induced insulin secretion in response to a glucose load. And this effect is basically mediated by two hormones, which we will be discussing. One is the glucagon-like peptide 1, GLP-1, and the second is the glucose-dependent insulinotropic polypeptide, or GIP. And these are two incontent hormones which are secreted from the intestine after eating a glucose-enriched meal, leading ultimately to insulin secretion from the pancreatic beta cells. Now, GLP-1 stimulates the secretion of insulin from beta cells, has a number of other effects. It, for example, inhibits glucagon secretion at the pancreatic alpha cells. It also has a number of very intriguing extra pancreatic effects, delaying, for example, gastric emptying by slowing gastric motility and thereby increasing the feeling of satiety and needing to reduce food intake, as well as craving and ultimately weight loss. It's really an interesting history as to how these hormones were discovered. The first GLP-1 receptor agonist was actually Xendin-4, which was discovered in the early 90s by the Gila monster, which is a lizard kind of animal that had toxins which were shown to enhance overstimulation of the pancreas. So it's a, it's a, it's a really interesting and fascinating group of drugs that we'll be discussing tonight. Now, we talked about briefly how the GLP-1 peptide works. It works by acting on the GLP-1 receptor. And in terms of efficacy for glucose lowering, it reduces the hemoglobin A1c by about, in clinical trials, about 0.8 to 1.5%. Um, the GLP-1 receptor agonists are superior to other drugs in direct comparison, for example, to sulfonylureas or DPP-4 inhibitors in reducing hemoglobin A1c levels. So um, a quite potent drug for someone like the case that you presented for um, management of diabetes. Thanks for that helpful overview of GLP-1 medications and how they work, Dr. Bremer. I'm picturing what a Gila monster looks like. I'll have to look that one up a little bit later. 
It sounds like GLP-1 agonists confer a substantial portion of their cardiometabolic effect in those with diabetes through enhanced glycemic control. It's also no secret that GLP-1 agonists have garnered considerable attention over the past years, both in the medical community and in the lay press, for their remarkable impact on weight loss. In the STEP-1 trial, which included patients with obesity who did not have diabetes, Subcutaneous semaglutide was associated with substantial, clinically relevant weight loss as compared to placebo. Dr. Brumer, would you mind sharing with the audience how GLP-1 agonists cause weight loss? How does Ms. Sweet's elevated BMI play into your decision to prescribe her a GLP-1? And last, how does dosing of GLP-1 medications change with targeting glycemic control and or obesity? Yes, absolutely. So the GLP-1 peptide signals to the GLP-1 receptor, which is not only expressed on pancreatic beta cells to induce insulin secretion, but it's also expressed on various other organs, mostly responsible for the weight benefits is the brain. And this includes receptors, GLP-1 receptors in the hypothalamus, which are responsible for the weight loss by increasing satiety and actually reducing gastric emptying, just thereby limiting ultimately food intake and caloric intake. So, so they have a number of additional effects on not just glucose control, but in general, the intestine brain access to control key mechanisms for food intake, satiety, and maybe even energy expenditure. But we'll talk about that a little bit later. Now, in the step one trial that you mentioned, um, this was a study looking at one of the GLP-1 receptor agonists, semaglutide in overweight or obese people without type 2 diabetes. And in this study, there was a 15% weight loss associated with semaglutide treatment. There were also a number of other beneficial effects noted, for example, lowering blood pressure, reduced cholesterol, reduced triglycerides. And it's important to note that the dosing that was used for the weight loss indication, for example, for semaglutide or liraglutide is slightly different than those doses which are used for the diabetes management. So for semaglutide, the dosing for diabetes is 1, 0.5 to 1 to maximum 2 milligrams for weekly for the weight loss for semaglutide, the dosing is different. It's up to 2.4 milligrams. Similarly, for the other GLP-1 receptor agonist, which currently carries an indication for weight loss, that would be liraglutide, which is short-acting, which has to be dosed daily. So I think it's important to make distinctions between semaglutide and liraglutide, which are weekly versus daily for weight loss and which are marketed under different names, Wigovi and Saxenda respectively for weight loss versus the semaglutide, which is the ozempic and the dulaglutide, for example, for diabetes and the liraglutide, which is actually the Victoza drug, which are again different. The dosing is slightly distinct in different formulations. Now, the indications for weight management per se is a body mass index above 30 kilogram per square meter or a body mass index above 
27 kilograms per square meter with at least one obesity-related indications. In summary, what I think is important for this particular case, if you ask how does the BMI play into the decision to prescribe for a GLP-1 receptor agonist, I think we have to be sensitive about are we using this mainly for weight loss or are we using this mainly for diabetes? And again, the diabetes indications would be currently, if we only speak about GLP-1 receptor agonists, would be semaglutide to laglutide, for example, or the daily use of laraglutide. For weight management, the current only FDA-approved agents would be semaglutide, just Wigovi marketed, or laraglutide, which is succendomar. Dr. Brewer, thank you so much for walking us through how GLP-1 agonists lead to weight loss and in particular, the nuances when using it for a diabetic indication versus a weight loss indication. I think a lot of clinicians aren't as familiar with those dosing changes. And so I really appreciate you discussing that point in particular. We know from several of the cardiovascular outcome trials that GLP-1 agonists reduce major adverse cardiovascular outcomes in patients with diabetes, and we'll be doing a deeper dive into the data of these trials in upcoming episodes. While weight loss and glycemic control are likely big contributors to GLP-1 agonist-mediated improvement in cardiovascular outcomes, are there independent mechanisms through which GLP-1 agonists also provide cardiovascular benefit that you could walk us through and our listeners? Yes, absolutely. Thank you. So, Clinical data from cardiovascular outcome trials in patients with type 2 diabetes, as you mentioned, have clearly shown a reduction in cardiovascular event rates and mortality with GLP-1 receptor agonists. And this is, for example, the first trial was a leader trial in liraglutide, followed by semaglutide, the sustained six trial, and dulaglutide rewind trial. So all these three trials showed maze reduction in people with type 2 diabetes with cardiovascular disease or at increased risk for cardiovascular disease. Now, overall, all of these studies showed very favorable effects on essentially all cardiometabolic risk factors. And these, of course, include, as we discussed, weight loss, reduction in hemoglobin A1C, reduction in systolic blood pressure in the GLP-1 receptor agonist treatment arms. But it turns out that the cardiovascular benefit may even be independent of hemoglobin A1C reductions. And we have some evidence for that on trials that we'll be discussing later on tonight. Now, in addition to the overall cardiometabolic risk factor reduction, there are preclinical studies, experimental studies, which indicate additional effects on, for example, cytokine levels, TNF-alpha, IL-6, reduction in inflammation, for example, reduction in C-reactive protein, and then some additional cellular mechanisms at even the vascular wall level in lowering certain mechanisms which are underlying pathways for atherosclerotic disease plaque formation. So these may also contribute, of course, causality is always difficult to prove but there are likely a combination of all of these cardiometabolic risk factor reduction and possible local direct cellular mechanisms on cardiovascular mechanisms, which lead to plaque formation in the arterial wall. So I think it's important 
to try to dissect in the future what is really related to obesity treatment per se with GLP-1 receptor reduction. So in other words, we know that obesity, for example, weight, increased weight and diabetes and the metabolic milieu are associated with inflammation. So if GLP-1 receptor agonists for example, reduce inflammation, does this occur as a result from obesity management or does this occur from a direct cellular pathway independent of the metabolic components? Thank you so much for sharing with us the other mechanisms that mediate GLP-1 receptor agonist cardiovascular benefit and how it may be independent of hemoglobin A1C lowering. I think historically, we've had several medications in cardiology that have been later found to have multiple effects, whether that be statins with their pleiotropic effects outside of LDL lowering or SGLT2 inhibitors. So it's helpful to learn about how GLP-1 agonists also have a vast set of mechanisms that are different from their initial indications and the initial indications that brought them into the limelight of cardiovascular science. So let's go back to our patient in the CardioNerds clinic, Ms. Sweet. So as we're looking further through her chart, you notice that she had a left heart catheterization two years ago, which showed mild to moderate coronary disease in the left anterior descending artery and some of its branches, for which she was started on an aspirin and a statin. Dr. Rumor, would you share with us how her history of coronary artery disease would factor into your decision of considering a GLP-1 agonist in her, if not even considering her diabetes? Would you also summarize the results of the SELECT trial for our audience? Absolutely. So let's first maybe talk about her coronary angiogram and her history of non-obstructive coronary artery disease, which we see quite frequently, obviously, in people with diabetes. Now, if we were to choose a GLP-1 receptor agonist for her, we would like to start with the GLP-1 receptor agonist that has proven cardiovascular benefit. If you currently look at the American Diabetes Association treatment guidelines, she would actually be treated or recommended to be treated with a GLP-1 receptor agonist in combination with an SGLT2 inhibitor. And this combination treatment would occur or would be recommended independent of whether she's already treated with metformin or not. Now, to get back to the question of a specific GLP-1 receptor agonist for her, we would choose one that has proven cardiovascular benefit. And as I mentioned earlier, this would be first one that was described with Laragnutide in the LEADER trial, which has a convenience of being daily dosing. So the primarily two GLP-1 receptor agonists with excellent cardiovascular benefit in randomized trials would be Dolabutide or Semaglutide. Now, if we were to put the diabetes part, as you mentioned, the diagnosis of diabetes on the side and just think about a person has weight problems and established cardiovascular disease, irrespective of a prior diagnosis of diabetes, this was studied in the SELECT trial, which is a very interesting study, I think, which is really at forefront of the questions that we're asking. You know, how can we prevent adverse cardiovascular outcomes in people with weight problems, which currently in the United States is about 70% of the population overweight or obese? Of course, not everyone has atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. 
by looking specifically at this population, overweight, obese, with established cardiovascular disease, and maybe without a history of diabetes. This was studied in 17,000 people in a select trial, and participants were randomized to either placebo or semaglutide up to a dose of 2.4 milligrams. So keep in mind, this is now the weight loss dose of semaglutide. So this would be the Wigovi 2.4 milligram weekly dose formulation. The primary endpoint in this study was the composite of MACE, cardiovascular death, non-fatal MI, stroke, and all three components made up the primary endpoint. And this was reduced by 20% in the semaglutide 2.4 milligram treatment group. So this is really a first ever drug shown in an overweight or obese population to prevent cardiovascular outcomes. And this is, I think, a very important study, and it's an extension of the benefit that we see with GLP-1 receptor agonists in people with obesity and diabetes, so a unique opportunity for the future. Dr. Brumer, thanks for that great summary of the SELECT trial and its implications on how we treat folks with overweight or obesity and coronary artery disease. I can imagine this subfield will be brimming with more studies to come in the next years. Thus far, we've learned how GLP-1s can provide benefits in a variety of conditions, including diabetes, obesity, and coronary artery disease. Traditionally, the first-line medication for diabetes has been metformin. I'm curious, Dr. Bremer, when would you use a GLP-1 agonist as a first-line agent over metformin? I think this is an excellent question and a very intriguing one to give you a very short answer always. And let's think about briefly and go back a step. What is the evidence that was discussed and maintained for the past 10 years to use metformin as first-line therapy in the treatment algorithms of people with diabetes? So we have a lot of history. We've used metformin for many years. We have good efficacy support. We have good experience but if you go back and look at the data that supported this, this, this was actually the UK PDS trial, which had a secondary analysis in only 342 people allocated to metformin. And in this group compared to intensive blood glucose control with soft lowers or insulin, the metformin group had a hemoglobin A1C reduction of 0.6% compared to conventional therapy and had about a 39% lower risk for myocardial infarction than the conventional treatment group. So there was good signal, but the patient group was really small. And because of good efficacy and good safety, metformin really made it into the treatment recommendation as a first-line treatment. Now, when looking at this today, we have many sub-analyses from large trials with both actually GLP-1 receptor agonists and SGLT2 inhibitors that the cardiovascular benefit of both classes of drug actually seems to be irrespective of whether the patient was previously treated with metformin or not. In other words, our current treatment guidelines don't mandate a step therapy anymore to have metformin as a first-line therapy. And then we add later on an SGLT2 inhibitor or in our discussion, a GLP-1 receptor agonist. 
So these are really now indicated as first-line therapy dependent on the cardiovascular risk profile. For example, in a patient with established cardiovascular disease, such as our patient that we've been discussing tonight, the GLP-1 receptor agonist would be first-line therapy, and first-line therapy would not be metformin. The algorithm for a patient like this would be because she has diabetes and because there is pre-existing cardiovascular disease and because she has weight problems, first-line therapy would be in a GLP-1 receptor agonist. The second-line therapy, which should be treated in combination, would be an SGLT2 inhibitor. And then if additional glycemic control would be required to lower the hemoglobin A1C. That's where I would probably use metformin as third-line treatment for this particular patient. Thanks so much, Dr. Brumer. And that's such a key point and one that I think is starting to get uptake in the clinical community, in the cardiology and, and medical communities, but it still needs some, has some work to do. That, that GLP-1s and SGLT2s really can be used as first-line uh, drugs and no longer require that step therapy. I really appreciate you bringing that up. Now let's return briefly to the case of Ms. Sweet. It sounds like we're all convinced that GLP-1 agonist is the way to go for her as a first-line medication, as you just discussed, Dr. Brummer. But she mentions that she recently saw a commercial for, quote, Munjaro, unquote, on the television. And I was wondering if you could share with us more about terzepatide's mechanism of action and how it's different than some of the other GLP agonists we've discussed, given that it's a dual GLP-1 and GIP receptor agonist. And what specific factors do you consider when choosing between different GLP agonists, including this one? Yes, thank you. Um, for, I think terzepatide is a unique agonist because, as you pointed out, it is a dual agonist that activates both GLP-1 and GIP receptors. And the idea behind using both is that, as I mentioned earlier, the collective incretin effect is mediated through GLP-1 and GIP to increase insulin secretion after an ingestion of a meal. So it seems just logical to try to activate both receptors and use dual agonist systems to accomplish this. Now, the molecules were modified to try to achieve both GLP-1 and GIP receptor activation. And the again, the idea is that they both would act synergistically on receptors to increase insulin secretion. Now, the advantage of adding GIP receptor agonism to the GLP-1 receptor agonism is that the GIP is also expressed highly in the brain, particularly in the arcuate nucleus, which includes the neurons in the hypothalamus that are responsible for satiety and food intake. And so it is presumed that the dual agonism with GIP may have enhanced effects on decreasing food intake and potentially increasing also energy expenditure and maybe even acting on some of the peripheral tissues like the adipose tissue biology to enhance insulin responses there. So it's a, it's a unique system, I think, that continues to evolve. 
We're now starting to see triple agonists that also include glucagon on top of this. So these are all new molecules which are being tested based on the very impressive results of the GLP-1 GIP coagonist treatment. And this was really shown in the Sermont trial, which included about 2,500 people with overweight or obesity and excluded actually diabetes. So this was a population or overweight population and treated with terzepatide. And after trial was completed, after 71 weeks, there was with the highest dose of terzepatide, 15 milligrams, it was a very impressive 20% weight loss reduction and essentially improvement on all cardiometabolic risk factors. So now for the first time in this Sermon trial, there was a drug for overweight with risk factors or obesity that is almost as efficient as metabolic surgery and improves essentially all cardiometabolic risk factors. Now, what we don't know at this time is whether tercepatide has the same cardiovascular benefit in terms of mace, heart attack, stroke, death, kind of mace endpoints as do the GLP-1 receptor agonists, semaglutide, tulaglutide, and liraglutide. So this waits to be seen. This is, these trials are on, ongoing, but so far, tisepatide is a very powerful drug for not just weight loss, but also in the surpassed two trial for hemoglobin A1c reduction, for example, the reduction for diabetes is 2.3% in hemoglobin A1c, which is a very impressive, uh, not just for obesity, but also for diabetes in terms of hemoglobin A1c reduction. Thank you, Dr. Brumer, for walking us through the mechanisms and data for tercepatide. I actually just saw a patient in clinic this afternoon in which this question of tercepatide versus other GLP-1 receptor agonists came up specifically for weight loss. So this topic is definitely very clinically relevant, and there's been so many helpful pearls in your discussion that I'll definitely bring back to clinic with me. Now, back in her cardionurist clinic, Miss Sweet shares with us that she had gallstone pancreatitis a few years ago and has since had a cholecystectomy. Can you walk us through the absolute and relative contraindications to therapy with GLP-1 receptor agonists? Absolutely. A key question, when should we not be using GLP-1 receptor agonists? The black box warning and contraindication is medullary thyroid cancer. This is because the GLP-1 receptor is expressed in medullary C cells and has been shown in small animals and rodents to increase the formation of medullary thyroid cancer. This has not been shown in large outcome trials or large patient cohorts, but it still is a concern from preclinical studies and an absolute contraindication. There's also some analysis which may indicate that an increase in familial forms of thyroid cancer. So I would caution about the use in other forms of thyroid cancer in addition to medullary thyroid cancer. Now, I would be careful if people with diabetes have diabetes for a long time and have neuropathy, particularly with gastroparesis, where here more and more reports of GLP-1 receptor agonists causing problems with gastrointestinal nature. Of course, this is well established, but we should not be using these medications in people with diabetes who have a diagnosis of gastroparesis. Um, similarly, you mentioned this patient had gallstone pancreatitis. 
I don't think that would be a contraindication because it's called sore pancreatitis and the patient had a cholecystectomy that is sort of should have taken care of the problem. But if a patient had a recent history of pancreatitis, I would be concerned. In fact, in imaging studies or in laboratory studies, changes in the pancreas and lipase elevation are not uncommon. So whenever a um, patient with abdominal complaints on this treatment, I would be cautioned about the risk for pancreatitis. The GLP-1 receptor agonists are not indicated in people with type 1 diabetes. That's another situation where we should not be using GLP-1 receptor agonist. One specific concern is in people with pre-existing diabetic retinopathy. In the SUSTAIN-6 trial, the cardiovascular outcome trial, there was an increased incidence of diabetic retinopathy complications. Incomplete treatment of diabetic retinopathy could be worsened. So that's another concern with semaglutide specifically. Now, in GLP-1 receptor agonists contraindicated in pregnancy and during breastfeeding. Thanks for walking us through those contraindications to GLP-1 agonists, Dr. Broomer. We've reviewed a lot about the benefits of GLP-1 agonists, but also know from our clinical experiences that these medications can have adverse effects in some patients. There have been a few patients from my clinic whom I've started on GLP-1s who upon return to clinic for short interval follow-up reveal they've discontinued the medication due to nausea or some other reason. I'm curious to know, are these adverse effects thought to be class-related? And if a therapy isn't well tolerated, is it advisable to cross titrate to a different GLP-1 agonist? I think we're starting to learn more and more about new compounds and side effects and how do they compare. I think we have a general gastrointestinal class effect, which includes the typical nausea, constipation, abdominal complaints. The more severe gastrointestinal side effects like vomiting, pancreatitis are rather rare. But I think this is overall class-mediated effect. If we look at one of the few head-to-head comparison studies that surpassed two trials comparing semaglutide and tercepatide directly, there was a similar incidence of gastrointestinal side effects. But of course, there was more weight loss with tercepatide, but tercepatide does not yet have proven cardiovascular benefit. So if you have a patient coming to clinic saying, I had severe side effects on semaglutide, I think this patient will probably have similar side effects on tercepatide. If you have a patient who has an indication for cardiovascular outcomes, meaning cardiovascular disease on semaglutide, but you wanted to switch the patient, then of course, you know, tercepatide doesn't have cardiovascular outcome data yet, then the alternative would be dulaglutide. But switching these drugs for side effects, I think the side effects are fairly comparable in my experience with all of these GLP-1 receptor agonists. I think it is important though, to stay within the indications and to to understand what are we actually treating with GLP-1 receptor agonists. As I had mentioned earlier, if you are treating obesity, then you use the semaglutide or liraglutide, which is currently FDA approved with the appropriate dosing for weight management. If you are treating diabetes, then you would use 
the semaglutide, dulaglutide, or terceptide for diabetes indications. So there's a lot of nebulous gray zone that is currently being used with all of these GLP-1 receptor agonists. And I think we have to stay within the specific labeling and the specific indications. I think that's becoming more and more important. Now, I think it's not a good idea to use the diabetes formulation, for example, of tirsepatide or semaglutide for weight loss indications where these formulations are not currently approved for. So I think, I think switching back and forth becomes somewhat challenging. It's also, I think in reality, when you write prescriptions for these medications, you are usually limited to formulary restrictions of the insurance plans of your patient. And that often limits switching back and forth. Dr. Brewer, thank you for taking us on this incredible comprehensive tour of the world of GLP-1 agonists and their application to folks with cardiometabolic disease. I have a sense that the relevance of these medications is only going to continue to grow over the years to come. Would you mind summarizing for our audience the key takeaways that listeners should remember from this incredible discussion of GLP-1s? Yes, I think these are very powerful medications. There, for the first time, we are able to use medications for weight management that, at least in clinical outcome data, reduce cardiovascular event, not yet in FDA approval. But this will come, this is just a question of time. Similarly, dual agonists will become available which may have cardiovascular benefits. So I think providers need to become familiar with how to use these drugs, how to start them, how to discuss these with your patients, how to work with insurance payers on how to use them and what are the indications. And I think it's always keep in mind, although obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease are sort of a long continuum, I think we have to be sure to understand what is the indication that we're currently using and which of the drugs would we be using for which indication. But I think physicians need to become familiar with this. And I think cardiovascular specialists need to become familiar with using those GLP-1 receptor agonists that are used for, for diabetes and cardiovascular outcomes and likely in the future for obesity and cardiovascular outcomes, maybe even in the absence of diabetes. Very powerful drugs, as you mentioned, these will only continue to evolve, become more widely available in the future, and are very, very promising drugs for cardiovascular effects. If you look at the weight loss efficacy of tirsepatide with 20%, this is unsurpassed by really any other drug that we have available for obesity management. And patients are interested in this. They want to learn about these medications and if we discuss with patients specific indications, how to use these careful and how to manage portion size. Patients are using these medications to limit gastrointestinal side effect in people with diabetes, how to adjust other medications, titrate down insulin levels and things like that. So those are all considerations I think that we just need to learn about in clinical practice. Thank you so much, Dr. Brumer. This discussion has just been filled with so much learning. 
You know, when I think back to medical school, I feel like GLP-1 agonists were such a small portion of our lecture on diabetes. And now just over the last few years, they've come to the forefront and are medications that so many of my primary care patients are on. And even I've started many patients on them in primary care clinic. To wrap up our episode today, one question that we always ask for guests on the show is, what makes your heart flutter about the field of cardiometabolic? That's a great question. It's my favorite question. You know, you mentioned that these are new drugs. So I think this is a real opportunity for prevention. And preventive care is it's key. It should be key. And there's a lot of opportunity. We have excellent medications to treat our patient population with weight management problems, with diabetes, and with associated cardiovascular disease. I think the problem, though, is that we're not really doing very well in doing so. And I think that's what we're trying to do is to improve care models in people with risk and cardiovascular disease. For example, if you look at large patient groups, um, that was just last year, 300,000 people analyzed in a JAMA paper that showed only 3.9% of people who would be eligible actually receive GLP-1 receptor agonists, even less so as GLT-2 inhibitors. So fewer than you know, one out of 20 patients with diabetes currently receives evidence-based therapy, for example, including statin-based SARBs and um, GLP-1 or SGLT-2 inhibitors. So what makes me tick about this is that we can actually be the advocates for our patients and try to do better in your clinic to advocate for these um, new agents and you know, if it's you know, just making sure your patient with diabetes gets a statin, which you know, is only 40% of people with diabetes and cardiovascular disease are not on a statin. So that, these are simple questions. And I think when I think about preventive cardiology, we have all these new drugs, but getting the evidence out to our patients, I think, is the unique opportunity that we need to tackle and need to get better. In. And that's where I close. And and I thank you guys for doing all of this and putting up this program. And I hope the listeners enjoyed what we discussed tonight. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Bremer. I honestly cannot wait to go back and listen to this because there was just so much to take away from this discussion and something that I personally learned a ton about. And I'm incredibly grateful to Gurleen, to Christian, to this entire group. What a phenomenal discussion tonight. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you again. I think you guys are, are amazing and you, you set up this program and the fact that you are thinking prevention is really phenomenal and I'm just thrilled to contribute and congratulate you guys. Thank you so much, Dr. Broomer. And I have to say, I looked up the Gila monster in between here and it does not look like an animal you would want uh, as a pet, but it certainly sounds like it contributed massively to, uh, you know, the advancement of treating cardiovascular disease in the 21st century. Not, not a very pretty animal, I agree. Agreed, yes. Thanks for tuning in to another Cardio Nerds episode. The audio editing for this episode was performed by me, Tina Reddy, I'm an intern in the Cardio Nerds Academy House Thomas and fourth year medical student at Tulane University. Check out the episode page for show notes and references. If you found this episode or the show informative, please consider subscribing to Cardio Nerds on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a review. It really helps us spread the word and further our goal to democratize cardiovascular education. Finally, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed on our show and site do not reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. 
All Cardio Nerds content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by Cardio Nerds. Stay tuned for more engaging conversations and explorations in our upcoming episodes. And team, one last thing. This episode is produced in collaboration with the American Society of Preventive Cardiology with independent medical education grant support from Nova Nordisk. And now it's time to make like an S2 and split. Boop. Boop.